0: Everyone and welcome once again to Work with Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's program by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands on which people are listening to this podcast today. Well, today we do discuss the hot topic of workforce transformation and the skills that leaders need to make it stick. The collision of a global health pandemic with the impact of accelerating technology has transformed not only the expectations and behaviours of workers all over the world, but also the organisations they serve. The change has been nothing short of immense and nothing is settled. Is the great resignation a thing or is it an illusion? How do we lead organisations to ensure we attract the skills that we need? How do we balance the needs of our organisations with the needs of our people? And how do we sustain innovation and creativity when many co-workers only ever see each other over the screen. These are just a few of the literally hundreds of questions leaders in the public and private sector are wrestling with each and every day. And I'm pleased to tell you lucky people listening to the Work With Purpose podcast today that we have the gift of the wisdom of a distinguished panel of international experts who have some of the answers to these and many other questions. Dr. Andrew White is a senior fellow in management practice at the Sayed Business School at Oxford University. He's a high performance expert and coaches several CEOs and their teams on leadership and transformation. His research is in fact focused on how to lead transformation in unpredictable and unstable times. His work has been published in the Harvard Business Review And he has his own podcast and official LinkedIn newsletter titled Leadership 2050. Dr. White is also a certified meditation teacher and has developed a toolkit of meditations which is tailored to help leaders deal with the many difficult situations they face each and every day. He joins us from Devon on the south coast of the UK. Adam Canwell is the head of EY's global leadership consulting practice. He has over 20 years experience working with leaders in Australia and the United Kingdom, delivering success for organisations in both the private and public sectors. Adam has master's degrees in both science and PPE, which is politics, philosophy, and economics from Oxford University. And he joins us today from Melbourne. Now, last, but by no means least, is Harinda Sadhu, one of the superstars of the Australian Public Service and Australia's High Commissioner to New Zealand. Harinda has served in senior positions in multiple federal government agencies, but most recently was the Chief Operating Officer and a Deputy Secretary at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. She's also served Australia as the High Commissioner to India, as well as in Moscow and Damascus, Harinda holds a Bachelor of Laws and a Bachelor of Economics from the University of Sydney. And Harinda joins us from the New Zealand capital of Wellington today. So Harinda, a very big welcome to you. Now, listen, before we come to the research um, that Andrew and Adam have been undertaking, I want to ask you a personal question. And I want to ask you to reflect on your own experience And to tell the audience how you feel about leading in such uncertain times and what's the one thing that you've observed in your organisations or the organisations that you've been working with that is helping people to thrive? Uh, Harinda, I'll throw that to you first.
1: Uh, My first reaction is, how do you uh, think about leading in uncertain times? I think my first uh, reaction is to say, terrified. Uh, and then the flip side of that is actually quite exciting, excited. And the reason is that where there is flux and ambiguity, there is tremendous scope for creativity and for, for your ability to really make an impact. Instead of just minding the ship, you're actually moving it forward. But I, I, when I think back, particularly about the enormous um, transitions we've had over the last two years, I'd say the one thing, that when my teams were really doing well, it's, it's when they had a, a really distinct sense of purpose and a shared sense of purpose. And I think that's what made all the difference to people being able to see it through as opposed to people um, kind of, you know, wobbling and sort of falling off the edge. And, and uh, when you think about that, that really uh, allowed me as a leader to lean into that and to drive that sense of purpose.
0: Did you feel that anxiety, or did you feel anxiety at times, and if you did feel anxiety as a leader, how did you how did you cope?
1: Um, so yes, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel anxiety. Um, you know often uh, in the last few years, I've had to deal with very large things that we've had to achieve on on behalf of the government in very short spaces of time. Um, But with that, I think, you know, there's a recognition all the way through that you are really doing something quite unique and and different. And I'm I'm a person who gets very excited by the ability to actually achieve something and to drive to the drive to the goal. So the way I tried to deal with it, it's like steering a ship in a tempest. You have to keep your eye on the horizon, on the goal, but you have to stay in the moment and actually get through the moments. That's really mostly how I dealt with it with my teams.
0: Dr. Andrew White, your particular experience and the one thing that you've observed.
2: So uh, firstly, thank you for having me. And it's great to be here with um, such a good panel. Um, I'd probably echo a lot of what Horinda said. I think she really put a finger on so many of the important factors about going through the times that we're in. I recalled as, you know, we were having this initial conversation, what it felt like right at the beginning of COVID. And I remember sitting down with my boss and said, it feels like the floor has just disappeared and we're falling and I don't know when it's going to stop. And both of us found that metaphor really quite interesting. Um, At what point were revenues going to stabilise? We knew they were falling, but where they were going to stabilise? At what point were we going to see how resilient the organisation was and and where the new normal would settle to around working from home and how that would work and how that would operate? So there was something about, you know, I think – the nervousness of that, of that, of just not knowing where the stability was, not knowing where the foundation was. Um, and I can still remember that quite vividly. I think if I would say, are there two things to build on what we've already spoken about? One would be living with a sense of impermanence, um, that nothing's permanent, um, and also then living with a sense of not knowing, and those two things can be hu- terrifying and they can be hugely energizing. Um, I-, I think like Harinder, we're living in a time of you know, real anxiety um, and great opportunity. Um, it's in periods like we're in today, where I think whole industries are destroyed and whole industries are created, um, and not many people live through times like this. Um, and we've got a great opportunity to get things right, like climate change, like digital technology over the next few decades. And we've got a great opportunity to get things wrong. Um, and I think that's the crux of where real leadership is.
0: So how, how can you be confident when you don't know if confidence is a, is a prerequisite to, you know, effective movement and, and progress?
2: I think it comes back to this whole question of purpose. Why do we exist? Um, And there are some things which don't change, I think. And so our operating model might be changing, but who we are and what we are and what we care about um, doesn't change. Um, so it, it forces us, I think, to come back to something really important. Um, and whether we call that purpose or values or a vision for why our organization or our part of the organization exists. So it gets us to a, I don't know, a higher place, a place of where things are really important. Um, and I think that's in many ways the job of leadership is to articulate that. Um and, and I think the other thing that doesn't change is our ability to be compassionate and empathetic with each other and and care. Um and I think these. These two things are kind of like you know they have like a chemical reaction to them in terms of um, focusing people, energizing people, motivating people. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I would go. It kind of it it kind of brings us back to something um, as to why we exist as people and why we exist as an organisation. So Adam
0: Canwell, your personal reflection, and again. The one or two things that you've, you you've have observed, um, and particularly I imagine in this role that you have with EY's global leadership practice, you would have seen so much. Um, what are, are some of those things that you've seen that have have helped people to thrive?
3: Yeah, and no, um, I, I was just reflecting. I, mean, I think as you ask your question, all of our minds go back to the beginning of this uh, this, this two years and and how it felt, and obviously the the answer is extreme anxiety and, and not knowing. And um, I, th- I think the key, because what none of our people, our workforces needed from us at that moment in time was us to lead put from a point of stress. Like we, we we had to find a way of anchoring ourselves in a, you know, a, something that we believed in so we could lead with purpose and, and, and anchor ourselves and, and take people through it. And that's not having to have all the answers, but it's actually leading from a point of belief um, and then being able to be creative and future-focused in, in what you're doing. And if, if I go back to the beginning, there, there was a really key point for EY as an organisation where we, obviously, as you're facing into the largest uncertainty where you don't know what's going to happen with all of the work that you're doing, you don't know what's happening with your team, our executive team took a step back and said, if we really look at this, this is a health crisis, and this is impacting on people, and all of our reaction is going to be people centred or human centred. So, any decision we take is going to be with people at the heart of every decision that we take so we we absolutely said we all share the pain we we will not do redundancies unless we absolutely have to we will look after everyone as best we possibly can and that was a a true and we came out with that as a point of principle across all of the organisation very quickly and that was a that was an incredible moment because it was a point of we didn't know we had no idea but we were going to we were going to be united in our belief as to how we needed to lead it and we gave ourselves a really important navigation and framework to allow us to to work through it which gave everyone across the organization faith in in, in our decision making but a belief in how we were going to take decisions so it's that it was that kind of point of belief that allowed us to lead in a, as coherent a point as possible because everyone's under incredible anxiety and, and stress. So you have to have something that allows you to anchor. And then interestingly, like, I, I, then you kind of go pragmatically some of the things I saw. One of the, we we quite quickly, said, we've got to have connectivity with our people because we're, you know, suddenly we're virtual, we're not connected. So we clustered everyone in our organisation into clusters of 15 who met every week with one of our partners. We're a partnership, you know, and so we're a partner-led business. So every, a group of 15 would meet every week with a partner. We actually worked with a psychologist, Jono Nichols, who who founded the Wellbeing Outfit. And we spoke to Jono because one of the things you've got to be able to do is bring Real conversation into the organisation. Where are people really at, and then what do we need to do to support people? And we just came up with a really simple tool based on what Jono said. It was just a, a very quick check-in. Uh, uh, one to one to ten. Where are you at? With with ten being I'm great. I'm having a wonderful time. One. I'm 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 in trouble. I'm like I'm really miserable, you know, and I'm I'm really suffering with this. And red flag, I need some help. And you, at the beginning of each meeting, for the first few months, we would just do a simple check in with a number, and what, and, that, and what that gave you was the kind of weighting of the workforce, but also we could personally treat anyone in our organisation who was was in trouble. And it wasn't a difficult mechanism to put in place. So, mm. it was a it's beautifully pragmatic way of getting the pulse of the organisation and being able to act on it in a very micro way really quickly because, you know, people are the, your sole decision-making frame. You've got to know where your people are at. Mm.
0: Now, listen, both you uh, and Andrew have been very busy with this piece of, of research. Um, Adam, perhaps tell us about that research and, and maybe even bring us into some of those earlier, earliest conversations that you and Andrew had about some of the questions that you were asking each other and some of the problems that you were trying to solve
3: yeah yeah no um yeah it's been uh it has been our life for the past two years hasn't it andrew so uh so and um, so it, and it is interesting casting back because obviously we actually conceived this well before covid but i think covid highlights a lot of what we're saying and, and, and brings a lot of it to life actually um about three years ago actually so we we um andrew and i we must have partnered together on different initiatives both work we've done in the market with clients and then also work that Andrew's done with ey on on, on research we must have been working together for about 10 years in in different ways and um, about three years ago ey we, we were kind of looking at who we were and who we wanted to be and and, and at the heart of our consulting business, we said, what we really want to do is help our, our, our clients deliver transformation or transformative programs successfully. Like we, we want to be standing shoulder to shoulder with our clients, helping them deliver really significant changes to their organizations. And we, we want to be famous for doing that. And Andrew, myself and a global sponsor, a guy called Craig, were, were talking about that. And you'd, you don't have to go very far to find some pretty poor statistics about the uh, the success of uh, of major programs. And I think John Cotter in 1997 said no more than uh, three in 10 uh, major change programs deliver success in their own terms. So there's, there's a 70% failure rate. Um, now, if you're a large organization saying we want to be our clients, you know, partner of choice as as they lean into this and you're sitting in an industry that's got a 70 percent failure rate, you should really have a hard look at that, you know, and, and say, is there anything that we could do, particularly, you know, as we started with this conversation in, in a world of such intense turbulence and shifts and change and some really complex, tough, wicked problems in front of us it would be good for, for everyone if we could find a way of improving that rate of, of, of success. And that's that was really the starting point and Andrew and I were really kind of debating, how, how, would, you, how would you address that as a reasonably complex problem?
0: So Andrew, th- the research uh, has commenced and, and it, it's been released. And there are six factors that you've identified for successful workforce uh, transformation. Uh, purposeful vision, psychological safety, purposeful technology, adaptable leadership, disciplined freedom, and radical interdependency. So, Andrew, could you just take us through those factors um, and just explain a little bit more about those?
2: Yeah. All big words, aren't they?
0: <laughs> yeah, but you've, you've, got, you've got to try to I'm, – I'm sure you're trying to cram them. There's a lot in each and every one of them. There's stuff full of uh, – insights.
2: So let me try and bring it to life in terms of a couple of case study stories. So um, one of the other things that Adam and I have done is some podcasts with some of the interviewees, um, because what we didn't want this to be is very conceptual. We wanted it to be grounded in real stories of transformation. Um, And the first one is what happened at L'Oreal. This is the big consumer goods company. Um, back in about, I think, 2016, when they um, were doing incredibly well. so This wasn't a failing company, um, but they looked forward into how the world was changing um, and realized that their dependence on retail supply chains wasn't going to be sufficient, um, that they needed to develop uh, direct relationships with consumers. They needed a digital interface through which they could relate to consumers. And they needed to work not just with um, advertising agencies, but also with people like influencers, um, and the whole way in which marketing was changing. So the CEO took the entire executive team off to uh, Silicon Valley. Um, for a significant period of time um you know got them to leave their jobs behind um, to the extent that they could and said we need to understand the future so what do we take away from that i think a couple of things one is that they consciously disconnected from the status quo they went to a different place to understand this purposeful vision um it's difficult to do that when you're in the fray when you're under the pressure when you've got the diary, you know, that's all around how we're currently working, um, the committees, the board meetings, etc. There's something about stopping and there's something about going to a different place to observe the future. And people would say that's a luxury. I don't think it's a luxury. I think it's an absolute necessity. And I think if you don't do it and you don't discipline yourself to do it, you're failing as a leader. Um, they went to Silicon Valley because that's where their future was being created. I, I don't think it's always about it's not Silicon Valley is not always the answer. It can be, you know, going out into nature um, or it could be going to visit an operation in a different country where, you know, they may be further ahead um, in terms of government practices. Um, But it's that separation from the status quo, which allows you then to, you know, get into that purposeful vision. Um, And that has to be, for those leaders, a safe space where they can say, we don't know what the future will look like. Because that can be, if we're honest, a vulnerable place to be in where you don't have answers. Um, so that, that starts there. Um, and very quickly, you don't have to take that to a workforce. And when you take that to a workforce, that workforce can be disturbed because you're telling them that their way of working, their way of operating is going to change. Um, and we had other cases where people had been doing a very similar job for um, decades. Um, and along came the head of the function and said, your way of working is going to change. And it's, you know, that puts somebody into a state of anxiety. Um, They may hear that and say, are you telling me I've been doing my job all wrong? Um, And, you know, how do you lead people through that process? And, And, you know, often when we set up a transformation project, we start with a project plan. And that's a very rational thing. But where's the plan for the emotional transformation? Where's the what are the measures we're going to use? What are the interventions that we will use to help that person and help probably hundreds of other people like that person go through the process of shock, of anger, of anxiety, of not knowing um, with both pace and patience um, to then help them see that they have a place in. The future and th- that story was out of one of the big insurance companies. Um, and they had a decision um, do we implement an IT system um, in two years across all the countries we're working in, or do we implement it in one country in six months? And, you know, getting the technology right early and landing it and making it visible, um, it's not technology for technology's sake. It's because technology can often show us what my future looks like. Um, And so I might be, say, you know, working in New Zealand, but it's implemented in Australia or vice versa. But I can go and see it and I can get a better view of how it would work. And it shifts me from being reactive about the loss of the status quo to being creative um, and that's a really important emotional transition that people go through so um, that catch those two stories capture a lot of what we mean by those six factors um, I mean we can talk more um, and but that's really what we're talking about it's about the the, the separation from the status quo to really get into a vision for why we exist, the safe space that's needed to go through the emotional processes with leaders, with workers, and then making that technology real early. So people move from, a a, let's say, a, a reactive about the loss of the status quo to being creative about the future.
0: So, Harinda, um, listening to those stories, reflecting on those six factors in your experience, not only in your current role as uh, Australia's High Commissioner, but obviously the senior roles that you held with DFAT, what are, what are your reflections on, on the research and, and how can it be applied in a, uh, the, the public sector context?
1: Look, I think it all applies everywhere the same, I think, in the public service context. And I must say, all of that resonates a great deal with me. Um, in various roles I've played, um, not just in DFAT, but elsewhere. Um, I've seen exactly that issue. Um, The one thing that really comes home to me is that all of this is actually emotional work, fundamentally. We're dealing with people. Successful change always involves bringing people along. So you talk about an IT change, and too often, I think, um, that we in organisations think of IT change as just a technical change and everyone else will... Welcome it. In fact, interestingly enough, I find uh, in my experience in DFAT and and elsewhere, even when you make a change that is demonstrably for the better, people will suffer some level of grief um, when they lose the 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 world as they are attached to it. Um, so I think it does resonate. Um, it's not COVID, and I think we can get fixated on COVID, but it's worth remembering that COVID is was a crisis. Uh, it, it's probably led to a bunch of transformational changes, the biggest one being work from home and flexible work and and the uptick in the use of technology. But um, but there are many other changes in train. There's a couple of observations I'd make there from my experience in DFAT where we had, you know just to give you an example, I mean, we had COVID and we had several different types of work that came from that. Um, everything from helping trade-exposed businesses to rescuing Australians and bringing them home. While we had the blast in Beirut to deal with, so a significant consular crisis, we had to evacuate distressed Australians and others from Afghanistan in the midst of all of this. Um, These are all overlapping, multi-layered crises that we were dealing with. At the same time, as we were dealing internally with leadership transition, uh, while we were trying to undertake some corporate reform and while outside around us, the world continued to change and shift. So it's, when we think about change literature, we always think about managing the one single change from its start to its finish. But in fact, we're in a world where we're dealing with multiple change and the ability to lean into that emotional work and to give your people confidence and actually to feel that confidence yourself and take you through that, I think is, is absolutely vital in the leadership. And the only last thing I'll say in terms of my, my reflection on all of this is uh, while you as a leader, it really is on your shoulders to um, to articulate the vision and to so, someone, um, Alan Ginchel, who's someone I really admire, says the job of leadership is interpreting the future to the present And I think that's very true in terms of what you're trying to say. It's to say there's a vision out there and that's what it means for you today. And if we can come along that path, I can take you there. And I think that that's really really our task. But the last thing I want to say here was that we tend to forget the leaders themselves. Uh, So we tend to see leaders as these neutral actors who need to have all these qualities. But in fact, they also are dealing with all these changes in the process. So the the level of emotional work and regulation that you need to have while you are leading your people, it's something I think we need to take into account and find ways to support.
0: So just in terms then of this notion of purpose, because the research tells us that one of the six factors is this notion of purposeful vision. And in the very first answer um, that you gave, you spoke about purpose. Is it a little bit easier perhaps in the public sector because of that purpose because of that mission and because of that is baked into the 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 work that is done in the public sector that perhaps it's a little bit easier to lead um because there is that baked in purpose or what what are your reflections on on that particular proposition
1: yeah david that's an interesting perspective i i do think that a lot of people join the public service and work in the public sector because they are driven by a sort of a, a sense of meaning or purpose. But I don't think it's exclusive to the public sector. The public sector has its share of people feeling that they're doing work that's not purposeful, uh, as as anywhere else. I really do think that this boils down to um, the ability of uh, leaders and actually the organisation as a whole. So it's not individual leaders here. It's the whole organisation, the leadership of the organisation to be able to articulate the purpose. And that goes down to not just telling people what you're going to do but why you are doing it and persuading them of that why. Uh, so I've worked in, in roles, in you know, a senior role in the Department of Climate Change previously that was kind of really clear I suppose what we were getting to we were very sort of outcome focused but when you work in a large public service organization that has a huge amount of day-to-day administration in it it can sometimes be difficult to discern the wider purpose and so there's a task on all of us right through the organization to articulate that and to keep everyone focused on the um, on the, on the you know on the goal keep their eyes on their prize I suppose.
0: So, Adam, um, as you listen to Harinder's reflections, what, what, how would you respond?
3: Um, there are a couple of I- I interesting things that came to my mind as, 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 as you were thinking, just on this kind of purpose piece um, and, and delivering transformation in the public sector. I, I think. Um, my experience, and and actually, there's some interesting data in the research that I'll touch on, which say it's an incredible strength of the public service that so many people do join it because it, they they believe in the mission. they they, they they're, they're deeply they're deeply committed to it. Of course, that also makes them much more intense critics of leaders when they feel it's not being led in a way that is uh, in tune with how they see it should be led. So it's both a, an incredible strength. If you can authentically tap into it, you can achieve wonderful things. But it's also a dangerous space because you're never going to be perfect in the eyes of of, 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 of everyone acro- across the public service. And we, um, we very deliberately with this research, when, when we were doing this, it, we've got a... A global database of uh, of over 2,000 programs, and then we've done deep dive interviews across about 30 organisations. And um, when we when we were conceiving it, we thought that we might find quite quite significant differences between industries or countries or something, and that we might end up having a few different points of view about uh, about this. Actually, as we analysed all of the data there's no significant difference by by by, by country or by industry um, across these six levers. They're, they're all true in all contexts. The only thing that you can really see quite clearly in the data is that it, it is much more difficult to deliver transformation or, or major programmes in the public sector versus the private sector. And, um, and as we've tried to un- unpick that, there, there appear to be kind of two... Two things. One, I think, is would be obvious to most, and probably both are. But what one would be, you've just got much less um, freedom to act as a leader in the public service than you do as a leader in the private sector. You've got less tools that you can pull on uh, in terms of, of of how you can drive change in the public sector. You're a bit more constrained in in your go-tos. The other piece that is that, and, and th- that it looks like. Particularly um, when a program is a longitudinal program, goes above six months because of the fast pacing pace of change in the political layer and different agendas that are playing. It's very difficult to stay a course. Yeah. So 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 those two factors interestingly show it is more difficult to land really successful programs in the public sector which i think is important the piece that then you can can see is that people then to what you were saying david and herinda you've got to you've got to go to the belief system you know because that's your that's your that's the piece that if you can really tap into that energy of what do we all believe and underneath all of that is the ability of leaders i think i think Harinda you said that the ability of leaders to lean in there was quite interesting when when we looked at the the different, like there's a really stark difference in the data between the leaders of successful programmes and the leaders of unsuccessful programmes. Leaders of successful programmes do lean in, they listen, they care, they're with the workforce. When you look at the data on the leaders of unsuccessful programmes, they lean out, they look after themselves. They've always got It's really interesting, like they externalize everything. They've always got someone else to blame. The consultants weren't very good. The technology didn't work. I didn't have political backing. The board weren't behind me. There's always an other person. That is, uh, or an other thing that is at fault for the for the transformation. I was looking at some stuff this morning, and it's I, I, I think it was Collins. I can't I can't remember the original person who, who contrasted, you know, effective leadership is is the analogy of 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 the mirror or the window. I when things are going tough, when it's really difficult to get stuff done. Do you look out the window to find someone else to blame, or are you looking in the mirror to look at yourself and say, "What do I need to do differently?" And at the heart of all of this was leaders who are constantly looking in the mirror because they know that they're a really key part of the success, and they've got to be constantly working on themselves and constantly stretching for what do they need to do differently.
0: So, um, Andrew Adam has really clearly articulated the the, the challenges there in. Uh, the public sector, that, that those that challenging context that's there, and I believe that you are working with leaders in the Victorian public sector. So, how are you using this research and 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 the skills and the knowledge that you have to improve um, the performance and that transformational leadership in the in the Victorian public sector?
2: So, we're at the beginning of thinking about that. We have just started. We've just finished the research, and we're now thinking about how do we take this into teaching interventions, into workshops, etc. But there's a few things I want to talk about in, in, you know, in terms of where we've got to in our thinking. One thing we know is that nearly all transformation projects start, this came through our empirical data, with, let us say, positive emotions, excitement, anticipation, um, a sense of we might be doing something different and interesting. We also know that not long after that, all transformation projects tend to go in a a negative direction. Um, And so the emotions become more difficult. And there is a critical point in there that, and I'll use the the phrase that Adam talked about. Certain leaders are able to turn that, I think by looking in the mirror and not blaming other people and turn that back into a positive direction. Sometimes that's weeks, sometimes that's months, sometimes that can even be years. Um, and they land the transformation in a successful emotional place. And we think that parallels the performance. Um, if I just touch on that for a moment, what they then end up with is a situation where transformation begets transformation. It, it leaves such a positive sense of, you know, we can do this. There's a confidence in us as a team. There's a resilience in us. So we can do this again. Conversely, that pivotal point can also be a downward trajectory. Um, And that can lead into a very difficult place. What we notice is that leaders don't suffer as much as the workforce. We think because of their power, their status, um, they can jump ship. They can switch on to other projects. They've got more agency. Um, The workers are the ones that really suffer. Um, And when I say suffer, I mean suffer. Some of the language that came back in the free tech survey was not good, to be honest. It was, you know, things that I don't think would have been out of place in a a clinical environment for um, around a mental health activity. Um, And so um, So what do we learn from that is that we are able to upfront work with people and help them design a process and help them think through how do they get that positive outcome rather than that negative outcome? And what are the interventions that they need to put in place? Simply put, if you think about, let's say your left hand um, is your dominant hand, and in, in, in your left hand being dominant, you know how to do a project plan. You know how to think about tasks, um, you know how to think about KPIs, you know how to think about critical activities and reporting of data and all of that. Your right hand is not your dominant hand. And, and that's about leading the emotional journey. And most leaders don't know how to do this as well as they, they've they been brought up knowing how to do the stuff with the left hand. The right hand is about leading that emotional journey, Does, even designing that emotional journey, having a deep intuition as an organisation. How long do we need to give people to really process things? When do we move from patience and creating space for things to pace? What are the interventions we will put in place to listen? Um, at a one to one level at a team level but also through technology how will we understand where our organization is what measures or or indicators will we use to understand the states that we're in Well, i talked about reacting to the the past that the, the kind of the grief that Harinda talked about in terms of the loss of the past inter- or flipping to being creative about the future. Um, um, and what are the interventions we need to make to move the organization? Um, and so that's what I think we're giving people a heads up around. Um, it's how to be as good as with the rational. Yeah, you know, it's good as the as good as at the emotional as people are at the rational. But when the mm-hmm. two things come together, that's where the magic happens.
0: So, Harinda Sidhu, I've noticed you scribbling notes down there and the heads nodding. <laughs> There's obviously some re- reflections there um, from what Andrew had to say.
1: Yeah. Um, this piece, um, I-, I was just reflecting as Andrew was talking about all the change, various change projects I've led and the ones that have worked and the ones that haven't, and you have to be honest about the ones that haven't, um, and it's this pivot point, I think, um, that uh, that actually ends up being the undoing. Too often, very often, I have seen that when we go down, and we always know, you start with a honeymoon and everyone's very excited and then actually you've got to do the hard yards to get that change better down. There's a point where you hit a plateau, I would call it, rather than a negative. You hit this plateau people start to lose confidence that we're actually going anywhere. Why are we trying, persevering with this thing? Because actually I'm not seeing any change. Where are the benefits I've been promised, et cetera. Uh, and I think that what it calls on us as leaders to do is to bring confidence and courage to the story, um, to have uh, faith that we will actually get there in the end. And when I think about the times I've been able to do that, that's come from a point of experience where I have known that we were going to go through always one of my little sayings is to say you're not going to get to the light till you get through the tunnel first, you know. So so letting people know that there is actually going to be a light, just follow me and we will get there. Uh, And then it's really incumbent on you to deliver that but to – the, there's a bit of work that has to be done to maintain confidence and faith. And at the same time, to be able to helicopter enough over everything that's going on to start to see when, in fact, it is starting to go off the rails, to be able to make a call. And I was I was leading in the midst of COVID our, um, as KU, we were running a very big uh, HR modernization process. And there was a live debate, and I I don't know that we ever really landed on the right spot, um, that we knew we had to do this work. There was a live debate about whether it was a good thing to continue with a major transformation program in the middle of COVID. After all, it's all change anyway. And it was really difficult to see through the noise and to work out whether it was, you know, we were in a plateau or we were going off the course because of external circumstances, actually, in and of itself, it wasn't working the way it should. And, it, and in the midst of that, also, it's very difficult to convey to people the need to keep going on this reform process because the distraction factor is so great. So I actually, while it's one thing for Andrew to, re, to explain that, when I think about what it's like in reality on the ground to make those calls and to keep that going, that's actually quite a phenomenal task in its own right.
0: So, listen, Adam and Andrew. There, the research has life beyond today. There is a, a lot more that needs to be done. Obviously, there is the applied work, not only with the Victorian public sector, but I'm sure many uh, clients around the world. What's the What's the plan from here? And uh, and what What else do you need, do you, or do you feel you need to discover, Adam? Uh, to you first.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I just um, i pick up maybe a little bit what Harinder was saying just there and then talk about, and also where where do we go with this next? Because we are, um, Andrew and I uh, seem to like uh, spending every hour on research. So we've we've just committed to another couple of years of this. Um, I I think one of the really key things, and and I think you name it well, Harinder, saying that there is a difference between a plateau and a, a, almost a kind of a, a collapse of confidence in, in, in a programme. And obviously, the point you want to get to as the pressure goes up is this kind of plateau. And, and, and if, you, if you looked at quite a lot of the psychological research would say you know, that the, the, the heightened pressure and the heightened stress of the transformation programme is really important because you, you can actually only get through to a transformed state if you learn new ways of thinking, new ways of of being, new ways of doing. So that kind of heightened pressure um, where what you get is that the leaders in the workforce having increased pressure on them, but the organisation shifts resource to support them, is a point where you almost create a learning crucible. And it's a really important, so that point of plateau is actually fundamental to the success of the program obviously if you don't put enough pressure you never get there if you put too much pressure you get almost this kind of systems collapse where everyone loses confidence people can't function people can't work so so how you get point people and the workforce to a productive place of heightened pressure and heightened stress so we use it for performance and learning is the key of transformation that's really at the heart of where a Successful transformation happens now. Of course, what uh, as you were saying, Harinda, that's really difficult to get right. Like that's that's you know you don't deliberately plan for that, or no one really deliberately plans for that because none of us really want to put people through heightened pressure, stress, you know, or, or or keep people in a place of distress over a period of time. But actually, I, I think the the architecture of that. So you do raise the pressure, but you 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 shift support in effectively is 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 at the heart of success and the the exploration we we, we've signed up to now is to do a more longitudinal piece of research saying we know that there are in any long-term program there are turning points where you've taken the pressure too far and you've got a bit of system collapse going on what do you need to do where do you pivot to as a leader to bring it back to coherence or you haven't put the pressure up high enough what do you need to do to put it up but at the same time put support in so so our hypothesis going into it is over a a longitudinal programme above six months, you know, there will be points of turning where you will need to take deliberate leadership steps. And that's what we really want to explore. So we can really explore that plateau, how do you how do you get people there? Can you keep people there? Do you need to give people time off? You know, there's a whole bunch of things when you really look at that that I think will be really valuable to explore. So I think it's a key point of what does transformation really mean and how do you get there? And then of course what is the leaders leader's role to kind of, you know, maintain some sort of equilibrium in the system as you go through transformation.
0: And so Andrew, to you as we we come towards the end of this particular podcast, what what advice do you have? Um, two leaders managing that very uh, difficult uh, period around a tr- successful transformation. What, what advice would you give to them and what can they draw from the research in order to be better able to manage and make the right decisions when that pressure is on?
2: One word, listen. Um, listen to yourself. Listen to the people that you interact with. Listen to the people that you don't interact with, Um, listen to the broader system, Um, use technology to listen. I think, you know, so much of this comes back to working with people on the human journey, working with yourself, working with the people you interact with, um, noticing who you're not interacting with, creating a culture of listening. and it's an innate human thing, um, and it's it's in some ways it's really difficult to do, and in other ways it's we've got two ears and we've got a brain and we've got you, you know an ability to understand. Um, it's a hugely human thing to do, um, and so if there's one takeaway, I would say it's that. Uh, can I add another one in there as well? Which why is not? What we, start, <laughs> what, what we started to pick up was. A number of the interviewees said, we think about transformation being an episodic thing. So I do a project or I'm in a period of transformation and then I'm in a period of stability. And I think we have a sense that that comes out of a 20th century model mm-hmm. um, that was largely where management and leadership ideas came out of the manufacturing of cars and mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm and where that's created a system that likes predictability, it likes stability. Um, um, Now, some of that's due in the commercial world is how stock markets work, because they like dividend stocks, they like predictable quarterly results. Um, A lot of our governance systems are set up around this, they're set up around stability. Yet the world we're moving into, I think is putting us into a place where we are in a continual state of transformation. And I'm not sure that word then works. It's more like we are in evolution, which if you think about it is our natural state. Um, if you look at a tree, a tree is never static. Um, a body is never static. A a flower is never static. It's in cycles of living and dying and it's in evolution. And, and so what that means in practice, I think this is what Adam and I have got to figure out. Um, but I do think there's something about our, the ways in which we've created organizations are not fit for purpose. Um, and there is something about oil and water going on at the moment. Two things not mixing, the, the need, that the scope and the need for transformation that is being asked of, of organizations and the, the capabilities, let's call them the 20th century capabilities, which were brilliant. You know, They have given us so much in the world, um, but not being sufficient. So to us, that's the big exam question. Um, and we don't have easy answers to it. But I think it's probably one of the most important things that's going on at at the moment, um, that if we can bring a little bit of understanding around, it's going to be really important.
0: All right. And Harinder Sadhu, I will give you the final word. Um, from a public sector um, perspective, reflecting on what Andrew has just said, what's what does it mean to you and what should it mean for the audience, um, leaders in the Australian public service? What do they need to take away?
1: Um, so... Really, I think the thing to take away is all the points that that Andrew has made. This notion about change and the way our organisations are structured, I think that's a very live conversation in the public service at the moment. Are we uh, really structured the way we need to be to be as agile and to deliver to our ultimate customer, the Australian citizen, as best as we can? So I think that that notion that we need to keep adapting because actually it's our customer set that keeps changing as well. And we need to recognise that very explicitly as we go along. That That is one of those things that can lead back to that sense of purpose that we started off talking about. Can I make one last point here? We've talked a lot about pressure. We've talked a lot about speed. But one of the things, if we possibly can, is to try to find time because actually we can make time for people that generally helps the whole process of change. And sometimes I find often what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find space and time to allow things to settle so we can keep moving forward. That's, but, yeah, it was great. to really learned a lot. Thank you.
0: Harindra Sadhu, Adam Canwell and Dr Andrew White, thank you so much for joining us on Work With Purpose today. A great conversation And no doubt, uh, we will be coming back to you as you continue the to sit that big exam and we'll see where your results are for that big exam because it's a fascinating, relevant, live, uh, as Harinder has just said, conversation and topic that needs continued conversation, needs continued debate, needs continued understanding. So thank you to all of you for your time today on Work With Purpose. And a big thanks, as always, to the teams at IPA and the content group for helping to create and produce today's program and also to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support. Now, a rating or review for the program always helps the program to be found. Uh, A bigger audience, who doesn't want a bigger audience? So uh, please, if you do have the time, that always helps. Uh, That brings to a close this episode of Work With Purpose. Thanks again to all of our listeners. We'll be back at the same time in a fortnight, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration
3: Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.